This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. about three minutes past the hour of nine o'clock. You're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. I'm Anthony Boxall. And my name's Dr Beach, and indeed it is just after nine o'clock. If, um, but, you know, we've all got smartphones now, so we don't have to worry about clocks. Yeah, but I've got those things that sit on walls that have a face. What's that? With a battery and, an, and a line. Right. And it's two lines and one line points to one set of numbers and the other line points to another. That's weird. Yeah, I know. They're analogue uh-huh. and they don't change with daylight saving. So if you have those in your house, what you will have realised is that you think that we're the doctors. Should we do that theme song? <laughs> da, 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 da. And we'll really confuse people. <laughs> it's Rania Marinara. It is just past nine o'clock and thanks to Timothy who has battled through what seems like that extra hour of sleep. That's right. And, you know, as Timothy said not so long ago, I mean, we often make the mistake night before daylight saving. Think, oh, we've got another extra hour. So let's stay out two hours. Let's have that extra couple of doubles. <laughs> and um, bang. And, and that happened to me this morning. Not the doubles, but the extra hour. I was like, oh, great. They've given it back. You know them? Kent and I were talking about them. Yeah. They, though the, those people are taking away our hour, they've given it back to us. 
And of course, we spend it before we've even used it. Mm. I, d- anyway. I do that in all sorts of things in life. So what we're going to do, we're going to wander aimlessly. No, we're going to wander purposefully through an hour of uh, marine and coastal news and views on Radio Marinara. And then, of course, at what is now 10 o'clock, that yesterday would have been 11 o'clock, radiotherapy will come on. Indeed. And they will probably describe the psychological stress or the cognitive dissonance that you're all going through now with the change of time zone. Displacement. Yeah. So temporal displacement. One thanks call to it. thanks to Timothy for a wonderful show mm-hmm. with that extra hour. What are we going to do today? Uh, let's have a chat. I'm going to talk about. I, I love this. Um, well, we've got a great show planned. I'm just going to preempt. As that. always, just going to absolutely. And we've got visitors. We've got guests up the wazoo. Travis Park um, from Monash and the Melbourne Museum is coming in, and he's going to talk to us about the hearing of baleen whales. So not only is it amazing. But it's very, very old. So from that's what I'm going to say. From, from a fossil perspective. For, well, yeah, yeah. But also from an anatomical... Anyway, I've got to get into this one. And then, and then um, after that, there's this really extraordinary paper that came out. Well, not really extraordinary, but very interesting paper that came out in January. And the date is really important. Before about January the 20th-ish um, in the US by a series of large government agencies um, re-describing the global sea level scenarios based on the latest information, global and regional sea level scenarios in the US. And let me guess, that the news is all good? <laughs> That's right, yes. It's overwhelmingly good news, as you say, Dr Beach. Your brethren, the Beaches, are not under attack. <laughs> Fantastic. Anyway, um, David Provis, who's a, um, a consultant engineer... Um, will come in, join us, and we'll have a bit of a chat through us, have a bit of a chat about, um, about this paper, what it means for the world. Excellent. I look forward to that very much. And after that, following closely on, we have another live scientist in the studio, and that being um, Quinn Olivier. He's going to talk to us about blue carbon and Australian tidal marshes and a very interesting paper that he's just had published with his supervisor um, in scientific reports entitled Carbon Sequestration by Australian Tidal Marshes. And we're going to look at that... F- the important job the tidal marshes which surround our fair country in spades, what they do, the yeah. important job they do in capturing carbon and how we can, you know, whether we want to or not, it it's, might be a good idea to actually put a price on that and then that will then speak to the economists of this world about how important these things are to save, not just from the sense that you and I, Anth, want to save them and that is for looking after the environment and all the other things that go along with that, but... You mean you know, convincing they, they, an economist it makes sense? Mm-hmm. Quinn's going to do that. He's, he's going to walk us through that and that will be at about 9.45. There's, a, there's another interesting question embedded in that and that is if you put a price on blue carbon, you need to have a price on carbon. <laughs> we, we kind of miss that at the moment in this country, but anyway, we'll, we can touch on that when we come to it. Hey, should we talk about the weather? And then let's uh, get let's, into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, let's do the Shall weather. Should we do the weather? Because the weather out there is cooler. It is definitely cooler. It's going to be 18 degrees today, partly cloudy, slight chance of a shower, that is 30%. Light wind becoming south southeasterly, 15 to 25k per hour in the morning, then becoming light in the late evening. <laughs> you do that so, it's just like seamless. It's like that. I can read really well. It's that extra hour sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, tomorrow it's going to be 22 and sunny, uh, 5% chance of rain. Tuesday, 23 and sunny, just Ooh. a small chance of rain again. Ooh. 23, 24 Wednesday. Thursday 27. So it's looking like a pretty nice Do week. I, sorry, did you say 20, 27? 23 back up Goodness to 27 me. on next Friday. And at the moment, we're looking forward to 27 degrees next Saturday. Goodness. Yum. If you're heading out. 
That was a really articulate way of saying, where did that come from? Autumn. Autumn in Melbourne. Autumnal. Autumnal. If you're heading out on the water, you will be interested in what the tides are doing, particularly Mm. at Point Lonsdale. That is the heads. Um, We have a low tide in about 10 minutes at 9.18 at the heads, and that's going to be a low tide of 0.15 metres. Working up to a high tide this afternoon at 4.11 at the heads of 1.72 metres. Dr Surf's not with us, but I will attempt to read Swellnet. Uh, <laughs> large... And you know what he'll be doing? He'll be cursing you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Don't read that rubbish. Um, the best best waves today are on the Mornington Peninsula, as close as possible to uh, where Dr Surf will be surfing. No, it says large swells are persisting about the Victorian coast. Best <laughs> suited, best mean? Best suited to Torquay. Sorry, can, I, can we just deconstruct that statement? Large swells are persisting about the Victorian coast. That means that the ocean's got waves in it. I That's mean, right. Really? Well, it, it, That's it, it, the level of detail it, it, it it a, Well, it might be a post-Debbie phenomenon. Who knows? Oh, guess what? The ocean's got waves. Yep. Oh, um, best, be su- best suited to Torquay. So head to Torquay if you want a good wave. <laughs> <laughs> and, and well done for battling through that with my interjections. You're on Radio Marinara. It's almost ten past the hour of nine o'clock. It is Eastern Standard Time now, not Eastern Daylight Savings Time. Daylight Saving. There's no S on it. Is there really? That's right. I, it's like very, Maya. I, I saw a very funny YouTube this morning sent to us by our friend Sam Slicer, and it's hilarious. There's no S on Daylight Saving? No. According to this YouTube I watched, I've spent a comedic my YouTube. Life pronouncing that wrong. Maybe it's an American thing. It was you think America, so? American oh, yeah, actually, comedy yeah, thing be, I watched, yeah, but no. I'm no, sure I somebody right. will. Call in and correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> Have you ever wondered about whale hearing? So they sing and they must hear pretty well, right? I mean, that's what I'm assuming. So, well, it turns out that our next guest has done a lot of thinking about this and has found some remarkable things about when whales actually evolved their hearing. Uh, nearly, Doctor, his, his PhD is just being reviewed at the moment, Travis Park from the Museum of Victoria and Monash University, joins us live in the studio this morning to help us explore when whales got their superpower hearing. Good morning, Travis, and welcome to Radio Marinara. Thank you very much for having me. Or should I say welcome back? You've been in the studio before with us. Yes, <laughs> almost becoming a regular night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, so, so baleen whales we're talking about, they're the ones that don't have any teeth and yep. they suck their food through those kind of hair-like structures. Yep, that's okay, the so, guys, the, yep. the big guys essentially. Yeah, so, so what, you give us a couple of examples. What is, what is a baleen whale? What's it, one that people would know? Uh, I guess the most iconic example would be the blue whale, so you know, the biggest animal in the history of the planet, you know, 30 metres plus long, <laughs> over 100 tonnes. You know, these guys are just... A, an incredible example of the power of evolution. So the, the, these things, the largest thing in the existence of the planet, suck yep. small things through its teeth yep. or not through hairs in front of it where its teeth would have been. A yep. lot of small things. A lot of small things. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I think it's about three or four tonnes a day they can feed on krill. So it's a serious appetite. Isn't that extraordinary? So if you're 100 tonnes, I guess you do want three or four tonnes a day. Yes, you, you need that to keep it going. It's a lot of Weetabix. That's a big factory. You're not going to go for the low GI stuff. You want the high anyway. So, um, so and, and of the percent, I know this is kind of a bit left field, but of the, the, of the whales that exist, are like half of them baleen and half of them teethed? Or, or uh, no, it's definitely more, uh, a lot more toothed whales right. than baleen. So what's another famous baleen whale? Uh, the humpback whale, yeah, I guess, okay. certainly for Aussie waters, the yep. humpback would be uh, another iconic species. Okay, so and, and um, have they always been this big? 
Uh, no, they certainly haven't. The the animals that I've been sort of focusing on for my PhD research are a lot, lot smaller. So they'll be closer to the size of a, a dolphin, say three or four meters in size. And they didn't even have baleen. They still had teeth in their jaws. Uh, wow. Sorry. I'm going to do yeah. it's just, just a bit distracted before we get to hearing, but a bit distracted. So, so they lost their teeth over evolutionary period and grew fine hairs across the, like what how does that yeah, well it's it's still a, a, a an ongoing debate amongst uh, myself and my colleagues that you know exactly how that process happened i thought you were going to say an ongoing debate amongst myself you are not the only person that's interested <laughs> there must be there, come on dr beach there's a there's a thriving i, I was not being facetious at all community. i was just that's just a gog that travis was perhaps underplaying the importance and general interest of his work <laughs> so all the baleen whales now so I'm, I'm i'm going somewhere with this but all the baleens now whales now are, are big species, aren't they? There's, yes. there's no tiny little dolphin like baleen. Yeah, even the smallest baleen whale alive today is sort of six, seven metres long when fully grown. And and how many million years ago were they only dolphin sized? You know, their cousins. Um, about 23 yeah, million right. years ago. Yeah. So so they've in that time they've developed this enormous, this gigantism, this fantastic, this massive size. Yeah. Yep. And even sort of the blue whale size, sort of 20 metres plus, has only come around in the last few million years. We think. Because cool got crunchier and nicer to eat? Like, why, Possibly. Why? <laughs> wow, that is so cool. Anyway, that's a, that's a whole yep. other topic. Let's talk about the hearing because they have superhuman or super whale hearing, mm-hmm. superhuman hearing as if, well, they certainly have hearing that's better than us because they can go extremely deep, very low. Yep. Even lower than I'm talking right now. Or perhaps even lower than that. <laughs> perhaps even, yeah. We can't <laughs> hear what they can hear. Yes. Um, so the, the big baleen wheels, they can hear down as low as sort of 12 hertz. And how, how low can we hear? We can hear down to about 20. So that's like really low doof-doof? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, really low bass yeah. doof-doof? Yeah. They that, can hear lower than that? Yeah. And down at that level at 12, what was it, hertz? Yeah. That travels better in water, does it, than air? So yeah, sound that... travels about five times faster in water. All sorts of sound? Air. Yeah. Okay. So if you're okay. an animal in the water, it's, yeah, yeah. it's much easier to use sound than it is to use light or smell. So sound is the go-to medium for communicating and figuring stuff out. Which yeah, is why sound that we make in the water can be so annoying for yeah. creatures in the water, exactly. like propellers yeah. on boats yep. and, yeah. you know, the cruise ships yeah. doing Alaskan sounds, all of that. It's effectively like us just pumping smoke into a room. We, That's right. We, you can't kind see, of stuff for that, them it's... Kind yeah. of stuff that gets my pulse up every time I see in the traveller section of the paper, cruises to Alaska. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Written and spoken by Dr. Beach. <laughs> the... Um, <laughs> So, 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 and these whales, so, so I've just got to get on this 12 hertz thing. So yep. we, what would we sense that as, as vibration? Like would we, if it was loud enough? We wouldn't even pick it up. We wouldn't be able to even realise it was there. It's, it's the same <laughs> on the other loud. end of the spectrum. Yeah, it's ultrasonic, we yeah, don't of course. hear it, but it's just the same, just the other end of the spectrum. And these are called infrasonics yep. at this bottom end of the scale. Yep. Okay, so these whales have this extraordinary, I'm going to call that a superpower yep. to hear, because that's just cool, because you can do that on radio, <laughs> um, to hear this really deep, um, really low frequency stuff. And mm-hmm. as we know, it travels faster. And they had this 25 million years ago, did they? Um, from what we can tell, not quite as low, but still very low frequency hearing wow. they had. Um, even despite being completely different in size and how they were feeding, uh, they st- still had very low frequency hearing. Their inner ears are essentially identical, uh, but just smaller in size. So hang on, so, so they got supersonic hearing before they got big? 
No, they they had the low frequency hearing. Yeah, and then kept the low frequency hearing, even though the rest of their body was going crazy and changing in all sorts of different ways. And Travis, you can <laughs> tell this from the anatomy of the ear, from the yep. from the ear bones, which have been preserved in fossils. Yes, it's the internal structure of the ear bone, so we can stick it in a CT scanner and X-ray it, and then I can. Uh, make 3D models on the computer and compare them with other fossils and or living species to see how similar or different they are. So have you been out furiously digging up new fossils or is it stuff that you've got from the depths of the archives? Um, It's been mainly stuff that's already been in in the collections, Uh, though I have done a little bit of prep work on stuff that's been collected and sent to the museum and uh, got them out of the rock and been the first person to actually scan them as well. That's got to be fun, going into the archives, going down to the oh bowels of the museum, yeah. digging, opening up these big boxes. I'm, you know, perhaps I'm exaggerating here, but <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, an, I'm imagining your PhD. No, it'll be dark it, too. It'll be dark, it'll be dark too, and there'll be right. catacombs. <laughs> <laughs> and there'll be stuff dripping from the ceiling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Skeletons of previous PhD students <laughs> is lying there. <laughs> okay, maybe there's an OHS issue right at that point. But so, so I, I'm, I'm kind of stuck on these, these little tiny anatomical structures. So in our yeah, mm-hmm. they're quite small. <laughs> like, but I suppose in a four or five metre uh, animal, they're not that small. But how, how do you um, find them amongst all the other stuff? Uh, the ear bones themselves, you know, are only a couple of centimetres across, but they're really, really dense bones. So for paleontologists, that's great because they're going to preserve and be much more likely to preserve than, you know, thin bone is just going to break and get destroyed. So yeah, right. we'll find them more often than not. And then we can chuck them in a, in a scanner and look inside them. So do you find the individual bones and then you've got to figure out what they're from and where, <laughs> like not only where they're from in the animal, but what animal they're from? Or do you find ear bones, because I, I presume all the connecting stuff like cartilage and all of that has disappeared over the millions of years that yes, they've been buried. Yes, that would be long gone. But fortunately for um, cetacean, <coughs> paleon- <coughs> excuse me, cetacean paleontologists... That's whale people who dig yeah. up fossils. <coughs> uh, <laughs> essentially the ear bone is the Rosetta Stone, so it's basically the most diagnostic... in the body so we can get it down usually to at least genus level if not species just off that one bone and because it's dense it's more likely to have survived millions of years in the rock and what other bits of the whale will have survived that long are there other dense bones um there are so the air bones there's a couple of different air bones and they tend to be the most dense parts so that's good because they're so diagnostic the flippers are gone flippers are gone kind of ribs are gone and Ribs are relatively dense, so they huh. will occasionally survive, but get, most I, of the skull will break off. It. Yeah, right. So I guess what I'm wondering is that you, you know, you, you've, they find a, a fossil of something, mm-hmm. find some bones. Um, could you look at that set of bones if you laid it out and just go, oh, that's a whale? Or would you then have to go into the detail of those ribs or those cochlea or whatever and You'd go... You'd be able to tell it's a whale. Yeah, yeah. Right. just because um, it's big. As long as it's not one of the earliest, earliest whales you know, wow. that are still walking around on land, then... You're going to be in a bit more trouble. Okay, you've got me interested. Um, sorry, <laughs> That's you, a fantastic you just, uh, yeah, that is a nice line. You said the earliest whales that were walking on land. Yep. Okay, I just tend not to think of whales as be a having legs and b walking on land. <laughs> yep. So the earliest ones were walking slash paddling around where the Himalayas are today, as the Indian plate was colliding with the Eurasian plate, and um, they are artiodactyls, so right. um, you know closely related to pigs and cows and stuff like that so what? how long ago oh, okay. uh, about 50 to 55 million years ago the earliest ones so 55 million years ago yep. whales were pigs or cows on small land small hoofed mammals <laughs> that doesn't seem like that long ago it to doesn't, me doesn't, does no. it? and they became 
uh, more or less fully aquatic in about 10, 15 million years. So it was very quick, but we have all the transition, trans- transitional fossils there to really document this. Sensational. And, and that, that rapidity, or what, what I think is, a, you know, 10 million years is not long for them to adapt no. to being in the water. Is that because the... One jumped in the water and thought, wow, this is pretty good. There's all this other stuff out here for, eat, for us to eat. There's, here's this niche we can just expand into. Is that is that the thinking? That's essentially it. And, of course, you have to remember as well, they're just the ecosystems are still recovering from the, the end of Cretaceous mass yeah, extinction. So you have nice. all these ecological niches are just waiting to be filled yeah, again. Yeah, so you have right. marine reptiles yeah. and things that have died out. So yeah. you've got all these resources in the water just waiting to be tapped. And essentially that's what cetaceans have went and done. So, so they were. I'm going to go. They were <laughs> essentially hooved animals. Yep. There would have been ruminants, or they would have eaten um, grass. And that's still been, being debated. Right. They, they might have been already uh, sort of eating meat. Ah, okay. They might have been. Yeah. And then they jumped in the ocean and started yep. eating the meat in the ocean. There's been some isotopic work done wow. trying to figure out the diet Super of these cool. guys. So but hang on and get back to the hearing. Sorry, I, mean, I know this is great. We got to, this is great. We got to come back in another time and talk about this other stuff. But the hearing. Why do they need this hearing? I mean, why worry about the really low level doof doof when you're in the ocean? Like, what are they? Um, well, these low frequency sounds. They like we we're saying, sound travels a lot better. But low frequency sounds will travel even further again. So it's enabling them to communicate over massive distances. Yeah, right. And because if you are roaming the oceans wide, you need to talk to your cousins who might be hundreds of kilometres away. Yep. And they can hear that. Yep. Pending the Alaskan tours. Yes, well, obviously. if you yeah. don't have cruise ships yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. and other and, things going on. And there are some birds that do that. Am I, am I, in New Zealand, is it the kakapo that has this really low sort of yep. frequency call to find mates, which is good at travelling distances. Yep. But, the, but the downside of that, correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's hard to actually pinpoint where it's coming from. Um, yes, yes, the, 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 sort of the physics of the sine waves will mean it'll travel a lot further, but it's a lot less precise. It's just like doof-doof music. <laughs> you can hear it. You can hear it. That's why it doesn't yeah. matter where yeah. you put the yeah. subwoofer yeah. in exactly. your room. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> sound and, 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 and marine mammals is... Because at the other end of the spectrum, dolphins, of course, have echolocated. They've got high-frequency yep. sound. So yep. what is it about the sound spectrum? I suppose it's, you've answered this question, I think, because the ocean makes is, is a great medium for sound. Yep. So therefore animals in the ocean have grabbed sound as the thing that they evolve. Yeah, when you're down there oh, wow. below the level of sunlight, you know, yeah. you can't just use your eyes. Yeah. Um, so sound is, is the go-to medium. Sensational. Just okay. before we let you go, yeah, Travis. Yeah. We've got to wind up. We've got to wind up. I could talk <laughs> just, all day. Just, just very briefly. So you talked about how we, the whales with teeth and then the baleen whales, which mm-hmm. are the ones you're looking at. Yep. They split how long ago? Um, tooth whales and baleen whales split about for, say, 38, 40 million years ago. Goodness. And they all had the same hearing before that, you reckon? Yeah, we think the sort of ancestral condition was, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, low-frequency hearing. And yeah, wow. basically the baleen whale group have retained that and yeah. kept it, and then tooth whales have went off and just went crazy with high-frequency hearing. Right. But when they were cows, they didn't. Or pigs. When they were hooved animals, they didn't. They didn't have low-frequency doof-doof hearing. They got it in the ocean. That is very cool. Travis Park, thank you for um, getting us all excited about the origins of whales and its hearing. And we're gonna we're just going to have to come in and talk about that whole transition from pigs to, to whales. Yeah, we will. That's a whole other story. <laughs> More than happy to um, do that. <laughs> so earlier this year, a, a set of major US agencies and universities put an update out uh, 
uh, on r- global and regional sea level rise scenarios. It was a really major piece of work. It had input from NOAA, which is the National Office for uh, Atmospheric National Ocean. Ocean and Atmospheric Administration. Thank you. And that voice, we'll introduce that voice in very, in one second. USGS, which is the US Geological Survey, Survey, the US Environmental Protection Agency, Columbia and Rutgers University, a whole bunch of them. It's published by the National Ocean Service in the US Department of Commerce. It's quite remarkable. And Dr. David Provis, who you just heard there, um, is a consultant oceanographer. He's the principal oceanographer at Cardno. Uh, he's also a member of the Victorian Coastal Council and the Victorian Coastal Council Science Panel. And he joins us to help decode this work. Good morning, David, and welcome to Radio Marinara. Hi, Anne. Glad to be here. So this particular piece of work, you know, kind of, it all started as, as they do with a task force. You know, with the government. And in about 2015, as they want, there was a major task force set up. And I've got, I've got to read the name out because I think it's a very catchy name. <clears throat> you ready? Take a deep breath. The Sea Level Rise and Coastal Flood Hazard Scenarios and Tools Interagency Task Force. <laughs> so anyway. Is there a good acronym it does, for that? N- no, I tried to acronymize it and it comes out of something like... Anyway, um, they came out and they set basically come out with a new set of models for global mean sea level rise and regional sea level scenarios for 2021 and beyond and it really changes what we know. So they basically updated a series of models to forecast sea level and and David I guess with your eyes and your knowledge as an oceanographer like what was the biggest change in in what went into these models that made it change? I think they're accumulating the whole lot of scientific research looking at what's going to happen or the the pathways for ice melting. Right. As we find more about what's going on in Greenland and Antarctica, we're understanding new pathways, new uh, mechanisms for ice melting and ending up, instead of being sitting on the land, ending up floating in the water or melting. And so previously the models took that into account but didn't have the science, they just kind of guessed it? Is I think that, that's correct. Yeah, I think right. they're, they're finding out more because it's, it's something we've never observed before. David, so, yeah, some, some yeah, of those of new things that are happening, for, well, one of the things that I can think of is that like fishes through the ice and then we realise that there's water flowing under the ice more rapidly in certain places. I think Antarctica is the one that I read about. Yep. So you're getting more rapid melting of that ice mass than we might have thought, say, five, ten years ago. I think it does two things. It, one is liquid water is obviously cooler than solid ice, sorry, warmer than solid yep. ice, so it, it, it does increase the melting. It also lubricates the ice or the glaciers mm-hmm. that are sitting on rock. Uh, if you imagine putting oil between two yeah. pieces of rock yeah, or something, yeah. they can slide. They, they don't need so much force to slide. So, gla- so what we call is, you know, the jokingly glacial pace might be actually speeding up. Could be. Yeah, wow. The other major effect I think they're finding is that in Greenland you're getting liquid water pooling on top of the ice which changes the reflection. It reflects a lot more energy. Sorry, it absorbs a lot more energy and Mm. changes the way it reflects. And that means that they're getting extra heating that they hadn't necessarily accounted for in the 
in the previous models. And so we we knew. I mean, I mean, I, I think I've been hearing for years people saying, "Oh, the melting that will, will will add, you know, to sea level rise." But we didn't actually, as you said, because we've never seen it before at this scale. We didn't have the numbers to feed into the models, right? And now, because it's happening, we can measure this and go, "Oh my goodness, it's actually happening faster than we thought." That's right. And what these right. what this report is doing is looking at what they're calling plausible pathways. Mm-hmm. They're not saying all this is going to happen at once. They're saying that there is a mechanism there which all of these people have reviewed and looked at and said, "Yes, that makes sense. Yes, we can see that as a possible thing that's going to happen in the future." So then they act, can incorporate the likelihood of that into their predictions for sea level. So let's move to those predictions because they're somewhat surprising. So they've, they've ranged them up between kind of what, you know, low, you know, medium, high, very high extreme kind of thing. Yep. And what was the thing that stood out about those predictions for you? Because this is global sea level rise we're starting with first. I think there are two things. One is they've raised the, the maximum level for 2100. Previously, they'd done a similar exercise some years ago, and I think about 2012, and they came with up with two metres was the maximum plausible sea level rise. That's when it's all the ducks worst are in case a row. Scenario. Yeah. Yep, yep. This is in 2100. Yeah. Yes, for 2100. It's like yep. your worst case scenario. And the lower limit, plausible pathway, at that stage was 0.2. Okay. Now they've raised the upper limit to 2.5. Oh! Which is. Pretty significant. It's like a quarter, a quarter again. Exactly. And the lower limit is 0.3 so, of a metre. So from 20 centimetres to 30 centimetres. As so, the lowest that they think is plausible. And, and if I understand them, this kind of modelling correctly, those lower limit ones are, you know, the, the, the uncertainty around them is quite low. They're actually that's, likely, if that's not... That's based on... The, the, the rationale for that one is that sea level has been rising... Global sea level's been rising at about three millimetres a year for the last few decades. And it has been. And it has been. Yes. So you project that forward 100 yeah. years and... So that low-level one is pretty much basically going to happen. That's it, going it, to happen. It's a no it's nine. Locked. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. That's a no nine. And the two and a half... So 30 centimetres is absolutely locked in. Yep. And the worst-case scenario is two and a half metres. That's right. Noting that you said that five years ago they thought the worst-case scenario was two metres. It's pretty so significant. <laughs> That's a massive change. They haven't changed the most likely number. Right. They still see that. Okay, as, and what's so that? that? That Well, that varies a bit from yeah. where you are, but around 0.7 to 0.8. Yeah, okay. Which is the number we're using in, in Victoria, Victoria at the moment. But we're only using one number. Yeah, Victoria. now this is where I want to get into this because they seem what they talk about this is this global this global number this big you know the whole ocean will rise by you know 0.8 of a meter for example, but then there's these regional numbers. The regional numbers, particularly in the US, um, are, are related to two things. One is you get variations in the the sea level. The sea is sea is not flat. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the major f- uh, cause of that is temperature. So water's warmer, it expands. So if you've got a whole bunch of warm water sitting off your coast, the sea level will be higher. Uh, and it's that sort of effect. Yeah, okay. Ocean currents also cause changes in and, sea level. And so therefore, you know, the, I know, the Caribbean's probably warmer than Alaska. Sure. And so therefore there's a regional sea level rises. And they're going to happen anyway, aren't they? You know, like that's, that's, that's kind what's of happening already now. That's the major. Yeah. That's the major cause of changes in sea level that we're seeing now. And then what happens if you overload, overlay on that, you know, storm surges and high tides, just like we've seen recently with yeah. the cyclone? 
that makes it more exciting. Or <laughs> more exciting. <laughs> Spoken as a true oceanographer. <laughs> Tell the people of southeast Queensland that. Yeah. More and exciting. And, and, and it's an exciting what, time. Yeah, yeah. What these guys say is that, in fact, the global sea level rise is probably going to be overshadowed by storm surge. By storm surges, and so right. On. So this is the average sea level rise. Yeah, yeah. On top of that, we have surges um, caused by storms and they're the ones that will and, come and get you. And storms we know through the predictions are going to get more intense, possibly less frequent, but the more intense ones are going to be more frequent. That's the prediction, the prediction at the moment. Yeah. And it seems to be playing out. And let's let's be one, one thing that I found really interesting as I went through this, there was a statement in this paper that basically said regardless, they didn't put it this way, but this is the way I interpret it, regardless of whether you believe this is to do with going on you know, coal fire and, you know, um, coal power stations or, or uh, fossil fuels, these changes are climatically locked in now. Yeah. They're going to keep happening regardless of what we do as humans. So even if you can argue about the origins and your ideology stops you wondering about the origins like some political parties have, the fact is that it's changing Anyway, sea level is so rising is in, in Port Phillip Bay by around about two and a half millimetres a year and it has been since we've got ac very accurate tide gauge data, digital tide gauge data from 1968. If you average the sea level yep. from 1968 till 2016, the average annual sea level is rising by... And about rate, two and a half millimetres a year. And if I understand it correctly, the rate of increase, imperceptibly, but the rate of that increase is increasing. We can't detect that yeah, with the information right. we've got. There's too much noise, the storm surges and all of those things. put noise. The El Nino, La Nina cycles, which are temperature-related, yeah, put noise into that and it's very hard to pick up an acceleration over that length of time. So it's quite remarkable if you think about it. This means, means long-term planning. You know, if you, if you, what you're saying is, you know, your global sea level, worst case scenario, it might be two and a half metres higher by 2021. That's, that's the major thrust of this paper, I think, is that if you're building a, a hospital or a, a, major, a major urban development with mm. a whole bunch of new blocks of flats on low-lying near coastal land, then you probably need to be thinking about a higher level because you're, the consequences of something going wrong are so much higher, yeah. so the risk yeah. you can afford to take is much lower. Or if you're living in somewhere like Bangladesh, you have to yeah. think pretty hard about where you're going to be living by 2100. Exactly. <laughs> I noticed on the front page of this, yeah. on the frontispiece of this, um, this article that we're talking about, there's a picture of Ocean City, Maryland, which looks like it's on reclaimed land. That will presumably be inundated in... To a certain extent, at least, by about... I'd, I'd say that one by a large extent. But by a large extent. <laughs> a lot of areas in Florida are already inundating on high tides. They talk yeah, about just, nuisance flooding. And, and, and this is a nuisance. It's, it's sort of economical mostly, but then when you do think about places in the third world, like Bangladesh, as I just mentioned oh. before, this is just completely disastrous. Oh, there are it's, entire islands that will disappear. There are whole yeah. nations that... And, um, and I guess for me, I mean, we're going to have to wind up too. I could, we, again, David, we could talk for, for hours on this, but it does seem to me that these are the kinds of pieces of information that are the, the, the grist for very long-term thought, very long-term planning. The stuff that, you know, you really thoughtful governments are taking into account and planning 20... You know, they're probably planning 10 election cycles ahead. Sure. I'm not, I'm not thinking about the next one. And that's a real challenge, I think, just broadly. I mean, honestly, we all know that with politics. 
politi- politics. Um, and I think that just to, to, to wind up, a um, little piece of intriguing real facts about this. This paper came out when? Mid to late January right. 2017. So just before the inauguration of the latest president. <laughs> of the United States. And so we might a, have um, effectively tried to put the kibosh on this publication. So, there's a no, so, so uh, th- there are rules now in place where a paper like this would go through a very different pr- approvals process within all those different agencies. And so it is extremely interesting. I, I'd love to know the backstory. I'd love to know when they rushed this one out. <laughs> um, but the science is pretty solid. It's phenomenally I good stuff. So, yeah. Oh, it's a real, it's a really interesting piece of kind of wake up call from the US perspective. And I um, maybe another time, David, we might get you back in to talk about what it means for Victoria. Sure, I'd love to. Thanks so much for coming in and talking to us and helping decode that this morning, David Carno, who is the principal oceanographer. Um, sorry, David Provis, who is a principal oceanographer at Carno, but is also a consultant um, oceanographer in his own right, a member of the Victorian Coastal Council Science Panel. I'd like to talk, we've got a guest in the studio, Quinn Olivier, and he's doing a PhD. Welcome, Quinn. Hi, thank you. Um, on carbon sequestration in Australian tidal marshes, or rather he's just published a paper on that, and this is around the idea of blue carbon, carbon that's locked up in intertidal areas, tidal yep. marshes in particular. And you've just published this fantastic paper in Scientific Reports with a bunch of other people from various institutions around around the country. You're at Deakin University, is yep, that correct, Deakin at the University. moment? And I wonder if you could just take us through this. First of all, it, it, I'd like you to let us know what blue carbon is. Sure. So blue carbon is the term used to describe um, carbon stored in our coastal vegetated systems. So the predominant coastal vegetated systems are made up of your seagrass, salt marsh and mangrove systems. And although they only account for 0.5% of the ocean surface, we found that they sequester about 50% of all carbon into ocean sediments. Into, so into the sediments, not into the biomass, which is above ground. So if you have a look at the stuff with, you know, in the mud, the slush, the, I couldn't call it soil, I guess, but the sediments is the right word, that that captures an enormous amount of carbon compared to, say, a coral reef or any other surface... Yep. Uh, subsea surface sediment that you might think of? Yeah, absolutely. So these, um, if you count the biomass, obviously the turnover rate is quite fast. So we look at how much carbon is stored in the sediments as a, as a stock value. Now, the reason why we look in the sediments is because you've got these uh, low oxygen anoxic conditions with low microbial um, turnover, respiration of the carbon. Yep. And you can lock it away for centuries. And with constant tidal inundation, so with vertical accretion of sediments, you're bearing more and more carbon into the ground over the years and you create these huge 10-metre stocks of just dense carbon soil sediments. Because right. nothing's eating it. There's just yeah, nothing there's, there's in there eating it, it up. Yeah, so yeah, there's past normally, a certain layer, yeah. it just stops. Yeah, just, yeah so. so it's essentially like a big storage yeah. vial of... It, it yeah, tends right. to be the top 60 centimetres. You have bacteria still remineralizing, and past that, it's really, really refractory carbon, so not as labile to the organic cycle. So how long have we known this, that the, the, the salt marshes in these areas store this enormous amount of carbon relative to other areas? Well, I'd say this research has been picking up a lot over the last 10 years. You've got a whole lot of people around the world really focusing on it. We've, we've known that they've stored carbon. We just didn't know exactly how much. So now we have these huge estimates saying, you know, we've got carbon stored there at a rate 30 to 50 times faster than a tropical rainforest. And obviously that brings in a lot more research. So stored at a rate faster, faster than, than, yeah. than a rainforest. So it's the rate of accumulation of yeah, carbon wow. into those soils. Right. And 
So, so let, can I, I've got to go. Okay, this is just really interesting yeah. because the, the, these are what have been traditionally called swamps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, smelly, so boggy swamps. So we are talking about smelly, boggy swamps. Cooey rough swamp. Absolutely. We're talking, and these things might save our bacon <laughs> because they'll store carbon better than a rainforest or a coral reef. Yeah, and it's, it's really hard to imagine. Sensational. It, you know, it's storing carbon more than a rainforest with all that biomass. But... I guess without that vertical accretion of sediment, you um, you don't have you, you reach a saturation. So point. that's building it up. Yeah, that's yeah. What vertical so every time means, the, like the tide, exactly. Yeah. Every time the tide comes in, it leaves a, a few grains of, of sediment, and you can constantly build. But in a you know tropical rainforest or a terrestrial farming yeah, system, it just becomes oversaturated in the top meter, and therefore most carbon that settles is just getting remineralized. I love this. I love Dr. Beach. This is Revenge of the Nerds. You know, large, you know, no, everyone's ignored these guys, these swamps forever. It's and fantastic. I love it. And what, what's even better is that you've published this paper where you've got you and a whole bunch of other colleagues have gone out and you've measured the carbon in salt marshes or tidal marshes. So salt marshes, and we sometimes call them salt marshes, but tidal marshes around the entire continent of Australia and provided an enormous, unique, groundbreaking data set upon which to project how much carbon we have stored here and what to do with it. Yeah, yeah. So it was a really big study. Um, the, a lot of people behind it and CSIRO's um, Coastal Carbon Cluster. And basically we compiled about 323, um, 323 cores and sites from around Australia. And uh, we found that just in the top metre, so as I said before, these, these swamps, these tidal marshes can go down to 10 metres. But yeah, just wow. in the top metre, you've got about $9 billion Australian dollars worth of carbon at the current voluntary carbon price of $12 per tonne. And this is the thing, we can actually put a price on this absolutely. at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So we're working with the um, weighted average of the last three voluntary carbon prices, $12 a tonne. Last time we had a carbon price, it was around 25 So obviously this, this rate mm. varies a yeah. lot. Um, and if we do get an, a, carbon, a carbon price, a price on carbon in the next few years, obviously that, that, that price will jump from 12 to a charger. So 9 billion could become 15 billion worth of carbon. How much are the rainforests worth? I can't tell you. Oh, okay. I'm just interested, like, yeah, there you go. Hey, the swamps are more. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. It's also, also, it's the rate of accretion. So yeah. we're looking at around $35 million a year worth of, worth of accretion as well. So, yeah. so, so that means they, they build up faster. Absolutely, yeah. So if somebody wanted to come along and, you know, clear a swamp and put up a club med or whatever, <laughs> we can say to them, well, how much is that going to return to the environment? Well, yeah, to yeah, yeah, how much is that going to benefit society well, dollar-wise? Because we already know from work that Quinn Olivier and his colleagues have done and other people around the world that this is worth that amount of money. And this whole field is is often known called um, ecosystem services. So the service here is the carbon mm. and the carbon sequestration. And so you could you could do that comparison. You say, well, your club med's going to going to you know raise a billion dollars or a million dollars over you know the the ten years that it's there. But if you left the carbon in the sediment, you that will raise two million. Yeah, you know, and then you've got the comparison. Goodness me! Without considering all the other obvious benefits that we in this room and our listeners yeah, yeah, understand. Yeah. <laughs> mm, yeah. Where, where to next? Well, um, we really want to model out, like like you said. So we really want to um, establish a case study in Australia, which has not been done for the rejuvenation of carbon in these systems, and then also be able to project um, land use benefits with different policy scenarios, so that we can say if you invest this much money in here into say 
uh, food agriculture or into carbon sequestration, what are we getting our biggest bang for the buck for? So if we can do that around Australia, we can then organise our agricultural and coastal systems into the most climate change mitigation and the best places to produce food. Yeah, wow. Fantastic. This is really, it's a really frontier thing, isn't it, blue carbon? And what, what I didn't touch on it is that you've actually gone out, put on the galoshes, and you've done a lot of measurement. You, you've been into a lot of swamps. In the mud. I've been knee deep. In the, sure. You've been you're up your armpits in yeah. mud. Good fun? <laughs> Good fun, hard work, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the analysis can be just as fun if you're not covered in mud, you know. <laughs> Quinn Olivier from um, Deakin University, thank you very much for taking time out on this Sunday morning to come and talk to us about your paper in Scientific Reports. This is Radio Marinara. We have to leave pretty soon and get out of here for the doctors. Um, they are lining up. They are lining up. They've, they've had their extra hour. They're ready to go. We want to thank uh, Travis Park from Museum Victoria um, at Monash University, Dr David Provis, uh, consultant engineer. And, and Quinn Olivier from Deakin University. Next week it's Anth back in the studio with Angeline and they are going to be talking about Barramundi and they're going to be talking about all things sailing with our own Captain Winshift. A cornucopia of interesting things. Thank you, Dr Beach. Thank you, It has Dr. been Wontrell. a great way to spend my extra hour on this day that we get our hour back. Pour moi aussi. <laughs> See you later. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R Sponsors. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.